Hear the word of the Lord. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sojourn, and peace be with you. Well, my name is Sam, uh, one of the deacons here, and I uh, have the honor of preaching to you this morning. Thank you for being here. Glad you made it out. Uh, <clears throat> we are in our third week in our sermon series, working through the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is 28 chapters long. Quite a long book, which equates to quite a long sermon series. So we've decided to take this long sermon series and to break it up into mini-series. Each mini-series will have its own title, I think, uh, but it'll have its own title. And uh, every now and then we'll jump out of the book of Matthew into the Old Testament and, and look at some things there. But we are now in our second week of this mini-series called A, a Crooked Tree. And last week we looked at the family tree of Jesus and all that list of names that you see in Matthew chapter 1, which we see was anything but some picturesque oak tree that you might see in a Bob Ross painting. It is, uh, it's, it's not pretty. Um, verse 17 of Matthew 1 informs us that from Abraham all the way to the birth of Jesus, there's 42 generations. It's a lot of generations, a lot of family. Uh, it's like we... You and I have this uh, super accelerated time-lapse video of this tree growing up, right? You know the time-lapse videos real fast. You got like the soil, then the little stem starts growing up, and then it turns into a wonderful flower. Like we, we have that kind of bird's-eye view into Jesus' family history. <clears throat> but as this tree continues to grow, we see that it is filled with all kinds of, of real messed-up stuff, messed-up people, <clears throat> um, a lot of shame, really, really poor choices are being made, really terrible things being done. And so in defense of this sermon series, Jesus' family tree was quite crooked and dysfunctional. But the backdrop of this whole family tree has been this promise from the Lord that a rescuer is coming. He's on his way. Just anticipate, just wait. And so you would hope that before Jesus comes into the world, that you would hope that this narrative, that this, this tree would somehow straighten up a little bit, right? Less crooked, less dysfunction. Maybe we'd start to see some blossoms or some, some good fruit or something along those lines. It would find meaning. It would find its direction. But I think that it's really interesting. You might not agree with me, but I think it's really interesting the way that Matthew 
moves into the story of Jesus coming into the world. I'm going to start in verse 17 to hopefully prove my point. It says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Did y'all catch it? That, that's, like, that's all you got for us, Matthew, right? That, that, that's what my mind is thinking. All of the promise, all of the anticipation, all of the longing and the waiting, and this is how Jesus came into the world. Matthew doesn't really leave room for our imaginations to church it up or to make it more palatable for us. There was no interruption to the shame and the scandal of the crooked tree. No one cleaned it up. No one sawed off the pain. No one trimmed off the shame. It moves seamlessly into Jesus being born into the world. And so this this is the Christmas story. Many of you might have read this story to your children just just a few weeks ago. But but let's look at, at, at what's happening in this passage, at the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. So, Enter Mary and Joseph, right? Verse 18. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Just a side note, these these weren't like famous people in their time. They were two young people, ordinary, unassuming. Verse 18 continues, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, we look at this verse 2,019 years later. And so we can quickly dismiss the shame that's actually contained in this passage. You and I can look at this verse that I just read, and we can fixate on the fact that she is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is coming. There's Jesus in the womb. But the the truth is, that is not at all the way that Joseph would have been thinking about this situation or the culture around Joseph and Mary. Joseph would have been thinking, my soon-to-be wife is pregnant, and the baby's not mine. I mean, like Mari Povich just showed up knocking on his door. Like, this is what dreams are made of right here, Joseph. Joseph was living in a time where this stuff was not for our entertainment. This stuff was super shameful. The best way I can describe it is, it's, your life will never be the same kind of stuff. More than likely, your life will be defined by this moment to the day you breathe your last. Mary would have been identified as a harlot. You can enter, use whatever vulgar term you want to use there, and it's probably what she would have been called. Just go to John chapter 8 and read what they, did to, they wanted to do to a woman called an adultery, right? You remember? They wanted to stone her to death. The religious culture would have shamed Mary. They would have never looked at her the right way again. There's that teenage girl who got pregnant. Cheated on her man, unfaithful, impure, unclean. Jesus himself would have more than likely not been viewed as a normal kid. So Joseph is faced with the decision. Do I stay? Do I go? Seems like she's cheated on me. Baby's not mine. Do I want to stay with that? Do I want to go? We read in verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law 
and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. It says that Joseph was faithful to the law. He was obedient to the law. Other translations say that he was, he was righteous. He wanted to do the right thing. Whatever the law said, that's what he would do. His default, his mode of operation, the way that he dealt with things is, what does the law have to say? And the law gave him grounds here to make this decision. We do see a, a certain glimmer of light where it would have been customary for Joseph to just throw Mary to the wolves and to expose her to public disgrace. Meaning her, she would throw her to the streets. But Joseph didn't want to do that. He decided to divorce her quietly, yet it was his decision to end it. Now, because the passage was just read, and it's a very familiar story to a lot of us, we know that he didn't follow through with that. But they wound up getting married. Now, it did take an angel of the Lord, which we'll talk about, appearing to Joseph to get him to that point. But he married her. But I want you to understand, yes, their, their title would have changed because they got married. Their status would have changed because they got married. But their circumstances did not change. Just because they got married doesn't mean that the saga is over. They still have all of those months for her belly to continue to grow with that baby that's not his. And there he is with her, still with her. Imagine the eyes of the world looking upon them, sitting around the the extended family table, going to the market, walking through the village, going to the big Jewish festivals. There's Joseph. He's weak. He doesn't know how to put her in her place. Does he he know what his life's going to be like? There's Mary. Baby's not his. I can't believe she did that. Even though they got married, that didn't change that. And since we're talking about the birth of Jesus, let's not forget that when it came time for Jesus to be born, he wasn't born in a normal place. He was born on a barnroom floor. (laughs) The first place that the king of kings laid his head in this world was in a feeding trough. He was born into a place where there was no place for him. This is how the family tree of Jesus just continued to grow. So what does this teach us about our life? I would argue that it's communicating that the crooked, dysfunctional tree that we grow up in, it affects every single one of us. It's there. Last week, Pastor Bobby preached. We were reminded that many, if not all of us, have a great deal of dysfunction and shame in our family tree. And because Pastor Bobby is Pastor Bobby, he is to writing as, uh, I don't know where I was going with that. He's, he's, a, <laughs> he's, he's a really good writer. I'll come up with something later, Bobby, and, you know. But I'm going to quote from him last week. Some of you come from a legacy of shame, while some of you are ashamed that you can't live up to your legacy. Maybe you struggle with sibling rivalry, or maybe it's a parent who is abusive, addicted, or absent. Maybe you were too sheltered 
Maybe you weren't sheltered enough. Maybe you had to grow up too fast. Maybe you still haven't grown up. One way or another, we all feel shame, like we're messed up. We aren't quite the way that we should be. It's not just guilt that we've done something wrong, but it's the feeling that we are something wrong. The crooked tree affects all of us. And as we work through this mini-series, I think that this week is when it goes from being about the other branches to being about your own story and dealing with that. As it is with the birth of Jesus and with Joseph and Mary, the truth is that the shame, it never takes a break. It's never going to clock out. We grow up in what we grow up in. And then you're left to deal with it the way that you learned how to deal with things. So many of us live under the delusion that somehow we can outrun the brokenness in our life. That it can't catch me. We convince ourselves that this dysfunction isn't transferable. It's not inheritable. And then we get, we get defensive, right? We, we say things like, well, that's not true of me. That's not going to be my story. My marriage will never be like that. I will never raise my kids like that. Well, I'm, I'm doing so much better than they were doing, so I'm fine. You might hear people say things in the way that they're relating and dealing with it. They might say things like this. Well, I mean, time will heal the pain. I just, if enough time goes by, well, the crooked tree will somehow won't affect me. Maybe you hear this. I just keep myself really busy. If I stay real busy, it can't catch me. I don't have to deal with it. Doing this is like building a sandcastle at low tide, believing that when the high tide waters come in, it's not going to wash away your castle. It catches up. Your brokenness can be hidden, your shame can be masked, and your pain can be medicated, but they are always there. You are attached to the tree. But I want to show that Jesus' birth into this world doesn't just teach us something about our life, but it also, even more so, teaches us something about God's relentless pursuit of you amidst it all. Jesus' grand entrance into this world was into a culture, into a world that would have inevitably scorned his parents. Circumstances full of shame and scandal to be topped off by being born into a place where there wasn't really room for him. And yet, this is how God chose to come into the world. God is the author of life. He could have written this story so many different ways. He could have made minor adjustments to the story that would have had drastic impact on it in a good way. But he didn't. This is how Jesus came into the world. And then we read 
this truth in verses 22 and 23. With that in mind, look at this. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. These are the circumstances that God came into the world so that God could be with us. God chose to join our world in the most scandalous, shameful, and humble circumstances. From his time in the womb to his first appearance in the world, Jesus identifies with each and every one of us in our most broken and shameful and painful places. And it's not just that Jesus isn't afraid of whatever it might be, it's that Jesus is familiar with whatever it is. And so what does this mean? It means that no matter how crooked or dysfunctional your family tree, no matter the depth of shame or scandal, the beautiful truth of the birth of Jesus is that he is with you and more profoundly, he wants to be with you. It is not his obligation, it is his choice to be with you. And so from the story of Joseph, there's two truths that we see of what it means for God to be with us. First, God with us gives us peace in our brokenness. And second, God with us gives us the power to change. When we experience Christ, we can have peace in our brokenness. Look at what happens in verse 20. This is what the angel says. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I think there's two incredible things that the angel's doing here. And, and remember, the angel is, is a representative of the presence of God. There's two things. The first thing is that we see the angel identifying with Joseph in his own story. He, the angel gets extremely particular with Joseph. The first thing that we see is the angel calls Joseph by name. We might want to dismiss that, but it's, it's vital. Dale Carnegie, in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, says this, a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Go, go read through the Bible and look at the amount of times when the Lord appears to somebody that he calls them by their name. We have an, an amazing experience of this in John chapter 20 when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb of Jesus, right? She has no idea that Jesus has risen from the dead. And, and when she gets there, she starts to panic that Jesus' body's not there. And then Jesus himself stands before Mary Magdalene and he asks, in my opinion, some crazy questions. He says, why are you crying and who are you looking for? Mary, in her, in her grief, probably the tears in her eyes, in her panic, she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. And she thinks that, that he's in on the heist of Jesus' body. But do you remember when Mary Magdalene recognized that it was Jesus? It's when he called her name. And she ran to him. Listen, in our most broken and shameful places in our life, the Lord is not afraid to call you by name. You are particular and you are important. You're not just another story. 
You're a name. But not only does the angel call Joseph by name, but the angel pinpoints Joseph's most vulnerable place in his life. Look at this. The angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. I mean, that's like hitting the nail on the head right there. As this situation comes into Joseph's lap, his greatest fear is, if I marry this woman, what does it mean for me? What about all the scandal and the ridicule and the public disgrace that I might have to endure? What are people going to say? And the angel comes right into that fear and says, do not be afraid to do that. Do you see how specific it is when God comes with you in your own story? He knows you. Do you ever find yourself thinking thoughts or hearing yourself saying things like this? If only this were different in my life. My life would be in so much better of a place if that didn't happen to me. When people look at me, I feel like this is all that they see of me. If you filled in the blanks to any of those things, Jesus knows what they are. You don't have to hide them from Jesus because you can't hide them from Jesus. God knows the deepest recesses of your shame and fear and he wants to call them by name. God with you being, being, brings peace into your brokenness because God knows your particular story. He knows your particular family tree. You are not a stranger to God. There is specificity to his presence in your life. So let me ask you, where in your life do you need to hear the Lord calling you by name? What is that shame or that fear that you're afraid to call, but Jesus is not afraid to? See, not only is peace in our brokenness because God comes into our own story and identifies with us, But peace in our brokenness also comes by the fact that God invites us into a greater story amidst our brokenness. Look at what the angel said to Joseph. So first off, not only does the angel call him Joseph, but calls him Joseph, son of David. And then the angel says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, being a devoted Hebrew, would have recognized these clues. These words would have evoked visions of God's promises to his people. The angel was reminding Joseph of his heritage in David and then telling him, when you hold that baby in your arms, you give him the name Jesus. So essentially, when you hold that baby in your arms for the first time, you look at that baby and you say, my rescuer. We see it all the time that people can get so entrapped by their own stories that we struggle to see that God's hand is really at work or we choose to believe that he's not at work. If you want to experience peace in your brokenness, you have to believe that God is up to something. That's not to explain away your troubles. That's, That's not to minimize your pain. But God with us means that God brings his story to us. 
as the presence of God comes into your story, as Jesus comes into your story, he wants to identify with your shame and fear. But he's also there to say, I'm here to rescue you from this. He's here to say that your story doesn't have to be the story that was passed down to you. Peace in our brokenness means that God has this amazing way of speaking peace to us amidst our own family tree while all at the same time inviting us to remember that we're a part of his family tree. And when Joseph experiences the presence of Christ and he realizes that there is a bigger and more beautiful story happening around him, we see the second truth take place. That God with you means that you have the power to change. Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke up, he he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus as we tell this story over and over again because it's the Christmas story, we can, we can easily gloss over this. But listen, we can't overlook the audacious transformation that happens with Joseph. He overcomes his fears after the angel appears to him and he marries her. And, and then, did you catch it? The second part of that? It, they didn't even do the thing that married people do until she had had the baby and recovered. There's a stark difference between Joseph just four verses earlier. But there's a couple things that we see with Joseph that can help inform us on what it means to have the power to change. The first thing that we see is that Joseph faced the shame. He faced it head on and he did not avoid, he did not avoid the ridicule or the cultural stigma. You see, many of us, we want to change We want to be healed. We want to conquer the shame that we have, but we refuse to face it. We would rather run from it than to run into it. But we see that Joseph did not do this. I've seen this in my own life and in the lives of many people around me. You see, it's it's not enough to just sit in front of a therapist and just recite your story one time and then be like, I'm healed, I'm good. It takes time. You're going to have to face it head on over and over again. Pastor Jonah says this all the time, but it's so true that it has taken your whole life to become who you are. So if you want to see healing, that's probably going to take a long time as well. If you want to see change, it might take a while. But there is hope. But not only does Joseph face it, not only does he face his shame, but the second thing that we see with Joseph is that he stepped outside of his own framework of doing things. His his default or way of relating to the world around him. Let me explain that. The pattern of of Joseph's life or the framework for which he made his decisions was the law, the Mosaic law. Right? So when he was faced with trials and struggles and difficult things, Joseph's mode of operation was he would say, what does the law tell me to do? And then that's what he would do. 
And so when he found out that Mary was pregnant, this is what he set out. When you're faced with hard things in your life, when you look back at your family tree and you just, it's just washing over you, how do you deal with it? What's your framework? For me, I shut down. My wife's not here, but go talk to her. She'll check that box off, right? I want to build a concrete wall and just hide behind it. One is that if, I, if I'm hidden, then, then I don't have to deal with it. The second thing is, if I, if I can go hide, I can go figure it out in my head, right? If I, if I just shut down, well, then the Lord's going to give me the secret recipe to go figure, figure this problem out. And my wife will tell you that's just not healthy. It's not been good for our marriage. It's not good for raising children. But that's my framework. Maybe for you. Maybe when you're faced with really difficult things, you just want to blame other people. Because all of your life is somebody else's fault. Maybe you just want to go pour a drink. Because the way you learn how to deal with things is to self-medicate. Or maybe you just continue to strive for success. See, the more successful that I can be, the more I can prove that that dysfunction hasn't made it to me. That that doesn't apply to me. But you see, after the angel appeared to Joseph and he began to experience the presence of God in his own story, Joseph's normal way of doing things changed. He moved outside of the law. And this is what I think is incredible with Joseph's story. Joseph was going to operate within the framework of the the law until he realized that the baby growing in Mary's womb was the fulfillment of the law. When he realized that something more was going on, he changed that framework. I'm telling you, whatever that way of dealing with life is, for most of us, it's probably not healthy. And God being with us, giving us the power to change, is Jesus screaming at you, there's a better way. You don't have to default that way anymore. They're all across this room. There are people who have done this. When they experience the presence of Jesus in their life, they look at their family tree and they say, no more. No more. They face it head on. They change the way that they do things. They change the way that they operate. And these are people who will pass on a legacy of godliness and love. You have the power to do that. But you have to face it first. And then realize the way that you were taught to deal with things might not be the best way. And look to Jesus who teaches us a better way to relate.
Knowing Jesus is about knowing what his presence means in your life. It means that you can have peace amidst your brokenness and you can truly change. And each week, we're reminded of this. We're reminded that Jesus stepped into and identified with each and every one of us amidst our crooked family tree. And then we are reminded that he eventually felt the full weight of our sin, shame, and suffering when he died on a tree. And this is a reminder that God really came into the world and that he is really with you. We do this by remembering that on the night when one of Jesus' friends turned his back on him, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken from you, or broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine after supper, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. For every time you eat of this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. The Lord's Supper is an every week occurrence that we do, beckoning us to the truth that God is with you. In the same way, in the same way that eating the bread and, and, and drinking from the cup satisfies our stomachs and gives us strength to go through the day. The presence of Christ in our life brings peace to our souls and gives us the strength to stand up and fight against the shame and to bring about true change in our lives. So as you come forward, the way we do communion is there will be a station here and a station in the back, and then gluten-free elements will be on my left, your right. When you come forward and you take a piece of bread and you dip it in the juice or wine, like I want you to hear those words, that Jesus is with you and that he wants to be with you. I want to be with you. I'm with you amidst your brokenness. And you can change. But if you're not a, a Christian, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, we ask you to not partake of this meal. It's a sacred family tradition for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus. But for you, I would ask you, if you're, if you're not trusting in Jesus to work in your shame and in your mess, what are you trusting in? And how's it working out for you? Do you want to see a true change in the legacy that you're a part of or in the legacy you want to pass down? If you do, I would invite you to come, come forward. There will be people up front to talk with you after the service. And they can talk to you about what that means. About what it means to put your trust in Jesus and to experience his presence. Friends, I just want to remind you, amidst it all, sometimes we can feel like Jesus doesn't really know what's going on. But the story of Joseph and the truth of God with us means that Jesus knows your story and he wants to be there. And at the same time, he wants to invite you to see his story taking place, giving you true, anchored, life-changing legacy-changing hope. Let's pray.